So, so you oh, know okay. how... Okay, so... You, oh, what, what did you have? No, 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 you first. Mine was plants. Oh, no, one of my plants is dying. I'm such a bad plant mom. And by one, I mean both. It's just one is dying is it, more. Is it the aloe? Like, no, it's not. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> aloe, I'm learning my aloe is being a little baby about staying alive. I sunburned it's it. It's so funny. Since the start of this podcast, I have acquired plants. I have not had plants. I've acquired plants. And now I'm concerned that I'm killing the plants. The only plants that I'm killing are the ones that are supposed to be easy to keep alive. My aloe and my succulent. Every other plant I have is so happy. My peppers are growing great. My basil's thriving. Uh, all my zucchinis and cucumbers doing great. Rubber plant, happy. Peace lily, good. Snake plant, great. Why are my two succulents or my succulent and my aloe just so dramatic? I My two pothos plants are not pleased with me um we have some discussions about it sometimes and i tell them that they're beautiful and putting out goodness into the world but i don't think they value my opinions so they're not responding accordingly (laughs) (laughs) maybe they need tough love maybe you need to whip them into shape get it together yeah (laughs) maybe that'll work maybe they'll be like "Ooh, so scary yeah Ooh, you know what i'm gonna i'm motivated i'm gonna grow more i'm gonna grow i'm worried one of mine is gonna lose its variegation because it's not in the most sun and both those plants are specifically supposed to not be in the most sun yeah but it's not having it i got them a humidifier and by i got them a humidifier i mean i got me a humidifier (laughs) and by i i mean tyler got me a humidifier (laughs) so i'm a happy plant there you go. That's the only plant that needs to be really happy. It's like a video game. If you're if the if the plants in your party die, the game still goes on, but like if you die, game over, you know? Is that a, is that an accessible <laughs> reference that's easy to digest? <laughs> One of my D&D characters died not long ago and the rest of my party went on. So I think I'm in just in that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's always sad when your character dies. My character in one of our campaigns has died twice, but thankfully has been brought brought back to life twice because my my uh, party members know how much I love that character. Aww. Yeah. One of my favorite characters I've ever played uh, was for a campaign that just no longer exists. Um, and I'm trying to bring her back because I OP'd her so much. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. She's, I based, she's an inquisitive rogue. I based her off of Sherlock Holmes. Ooh. I know. And so she basically kills people with knowledge. Ooh. Which is my dream. All right, I'm going to kill you guys with knowledge today. Tracy's going to kill you with knowledge. And love. We'll kill you with knowledge and love. Anyway, hi. I'm Rowan Hall. (laughs) And I'm Tracy Harrison. And we are still and always will be the Willing and Fable podcast. We're a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. Once the Willing and Fable podcast, always the Willing and Fable podcast. Put it on a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. If you say it slowly and in a deeper voice, it sounds like it's wisdom. Mm. Oh, hey, can we talk about this? Speaking of t-shirts and phrases, Jamie made us whiskey and fable art so we can't tell you why she did that but it's coming for you soon friends why can't why can't we tell her why she did that why can't we tell them 
We can, I guess, if you want to. I want to... Okay. Rowan loves surprises. It'll be a surprise. <laughs> I do love surprises. <laughs> Why is that? It's human nature. Why don't you love surprises? I have... I have a lot of anxiety. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that sounded really judgmental of me, but it was more, it was just a legitimate question. <laughs> um, I like, I don't know, because I'm also, like, I like opening presents, but I don't like, I mean, growing up, Roan was always the spontaneous one, and <laughs> I have never been spontaneous once in my life. If you don't tell me at least two or three days in advance that we have plans, I'm not emotionally ready. My plan was to do nothing, and now I'm not changing it. I feel like you just described me like the, spar- the spontaneous one, like a Barbie. Like, <laughs> Rowan, the spontaneous one. <laughs> Coming this summer, spontaneous Barbie. <laughs> what does that make you? The intellectual one. You're the oh, brunette. That's so I'm nice. sorry, you have to be the smart one. <laughs> Fine, I'll take I'll take being smart. I was gonna I was gonna call myself studious, which I guess just means like it doesn't mean smart, but it means just like studies. I don't know. Um, We're just really digging up the tropes from the dolls of our youth. It doesn't have to be like that anymore. No, it doesn't. But um, I still am boring brunette Barbie. You're not boring. Thank you. I think you're fascinating. Oh. Oh, I mean, keep coming. I mean, keep going. Don't stop. I do. I think you're fascinating. You're one of my favorite people. If the Titanic were sinking and there were only one spot on the lifeboat and it was you or me, I honestly think you could do more good for the world. So I definitely push your skinny butt onto the lifeboat. So here's the problem. We'd both push each other onto the lifeboat and then we'd both fall into the water. And die. And then die. So maybe the moral of the story is that we shouldn't go on the Titanic. So... Segway. Pretend I was smooth. That was so smooth. Oh my god. I just oof. I I gotta recover. Hold on. Give me a second. Oof. All right, I'm good. Go on. I'm so smooth. Okay, so before we get into the proper episode, I'm gonna roll us back to last episode. Do you remember when we were discussing my struggle in learning to pronounce Irish words? Uh yes, very much. We kept referring to the language as Irish, and I, in looking back on that episode, had such a panic, and I thought, oh my gosh, what if the language that we were referring to wasn't even called Irish? Was it Gaelic? Was it Gaelic? Was it Irish Gaelic? Well, turns out that Irish and Gaelic are not synonymous words, which I want to say that I knew, but... Let's be honest. The only reason I had any indication that that might be the case is that I read Outlander in high school, and they talked about speaking Gaelic, and they're Scottish, so I knew there's a connection between Scottish people and a a language referred to as Gaelic. Yeah, I thought there was more commonality across the board. Anyway, the point is this. I think we used the word Irish correctly in the episode, but because I did the research and it was fascinating, in the show notes, I have linked two YouTube videos about languages in that corner of the universe and the differences between Irish and Gaelic and Irish Gaelic and Scots Gaelic. 
So the show notes are really good this week. So give them a look. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm going to give them a look because I love learning about those languages. I love, I just for fun will watch videos of people teaching you different Irish words or different Gaelic words. I think it's so cool and beautiful. Now that we have a podcast, all I do is watch YouTube videos of pronunciations for words. (laughs) I wish I could say that now because we have a podcast, I do that. But I was doing that before we have a podcast. (laughs) Which is why I'm, which is, you know what I am? I'm nerd Barbie. That's what I am. Nerd Barbie. Wasn't that Midge in the original Barbie incarnation? I don't think she was specifically a nerd. I think she was just Barbie's, I think was Midge Barbie's best friend. Wasn't she her sister? She might have been her sister. Her then her sister I don't became remember. Her sister became Peggy? Is that it? Kelly? Kelly. All I remember about Midge is that she had flat doll feet, so she couldn't wear the same shoes as Barbie, mm. which was actually better for me as a young child because I kept losing all the teeny tiny little Barbie heels. Mm, I never had a Midge doll, I don't think. The only reason I know anything about it is that I really adore Trixie Mattel, the drag queen, and she has a bunch of videos on YouTube going over her vintage Barbie collection. I got a lot of doll hand-me-downs of Barbies, which was really nice. But then I discovered Mermaid Barbie, and it was over. No legs. Game over. (laughs) I'm the youngest of five, so I got a lot of hand-me-down Barbies, but I never knew what they were. By that point, they barely had hair left. When I was... I want to say 12, I discovered a box that had been put away in the closet of my old Barbie dolls. And I found the ones that had the jointed arms and legs. Mm -hmm. And I broke them apart and took off all their heads and I made a Barbie sculpture. Oh my God, I remember that. I swear my parents were never more proud of me. I was going to say, I thought you were going to say your parents were like afraid. I was like, that is the, the least, how do I frame this? Yeah, your parents would be proud of that. Like, that, your parents would not look at that and be like, oh, no, our child. Your parents would be like, oh, yeah, our child's doing art. Like, that is- <laughs> <laughs> art, yes. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to talk about the topic for the episode. It is time to continue our Seven Deadly Sin series with the sin of envy. In modern American culture, envy and jealousy are often lumped together. Our good friend Merriam-Webster says that envy is painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. Christianity.com goes further with a definition from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary, quote, sin of jealousy over the blessings and achievement of others, especially the spiritual enjoyment and advance of the kingdom of Christ freely and graciously bestowed upon the people of God, Interestingly, envy and jealousy appear as traits to avoid in a myriad of teachings, including Hinduism, Islam, and Judaism. Religious texts, parables, prophets, sermons, songs, and even simple children's stories teach about the pitfalls of acting in envy. The same Christianity.com article I mentioned before points out that envy denies your uniqueness, divides your attention, wastes your time and energy, and can lead you right back to the other deadly sins. And of course, we cannot forget the modern connection of envy to the colors yellow and green. The phrases green-eyed monster or green with envy are used 
fairly often in modern speech. And we have Shakespeare. In his play The Merchant of Venice, Portia says, How all the other passions fleet to air, as doubtful thoughts and rash embraced despair, and shuddering fear and green-eyed jealousy. So today, we're going to be sharing two stories that we think highlight, or at least touch on, the sin of envy. To start, let's travel all the way back to ancient Egypt. I'm so glad you're doing this, my (laughs) Egyptology-obsessed friend. As the Egyptology-obsessed friend that I've had since childhood, I'm glad to be doing this with you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So there's a reason that when you think of ancient Egypt, you probably think of pyramids in the desert, empty echoing tombs or old timey adventurers avoiding curses and finding hidden treasure. Or if you're like Rowan and myself, you think of Brendan Fraser and the 1999 Mummy movie and you wonder to this day how you can go back in time and be a cool 1920s archaeologist and librarian like Evie. Hold on real quick. Confirm or deny, after watching those movies, did you adjust your wardrobe to try to be more like the team in that movie? So, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, And I was trying to decide if I should say, like, oh, you know, when I was kind of like a kid or a teen, yeah, but, like, I'm an adult and I'm still, to this day, I'm, like, actually in the current moment going through a phase where I'm looking up like long brown skirts and flowy white shirts. If you look up Rachel Maxi on YouTube or Instagram, she is my every aesthetic dream. She's amazing. She does amazing vintage clothing, but then she does these incredible vintage explorer outfits. Go check out Rachel Maxi. Cannot recommend her enough. She inspired me to jump back into my mummy aesthetic because she, too, is a huge fan of the mummy, just like I me and Rowan. thrifted a very cheap sweater the other day that specifically looks like it could have been in that movie, and I picked my glasses based on the idea that I look like an explorer. It's such a good vibe. It's such a good vibe. It's, yes. Yeah, so to answer your question, yes, I 100%. My wardrobe is either kind of like all black cottage witch or tan and white desert explorer from the 1920s oh my gosh i oh my gosh okay i gifted myself a stitch fix this Mm. month Mm -hmm. because i realized i need professional help in a couple areas of my closet and they had a thing you know where you describe your look Mm -hmm. and i (laughs) had to actually type the words (laughs) I want to either look like a gothic fortune-telling witch Mm -hmm. or an androgynist artist that doesn't have time to think about their wardrobe. Those are the things that I want to look like. (laughs) (laughs) Strong vibes, though. Thank you. Yeah. All right. right. So back back to Egypt. The reason that you probably think of old-timey explorers when you think of ancient Egypt is because most of what we've learned about ancient Egypt, we've learned through archaeological evidence that's been discovered over hundreds of years. Fortunately, many of these discoveries contained tons of writings about mythology and religion. 
However, while it is helpful to understand these writings, it's important to note that production of these works of art was a prestige of the king and elite. Thus, more is known about the artistic representation of religion in ancient Egypt than the actual day-to-day practice. For example, kings or pharaohs were almost always depicted as making offerings to the gods when, in reality, that ritual was most likely performed by priests. To quote Encyclopedia Britannica, The king was the center of human society, the guarantor of order for the gods, the recipient of God-given benefits, including life itself, and the benevolent ruler of the world for humanity. However, it is believed that individuals could interact with the gods for their own purposes, such as appealing to them through prayer or ritual in order to ask for help. As the status of the pharaoh declined, the popularity of these religious practices grew. Another important thing to note is the concept of ma'at. Ma'at is order, and it was fundamental in the ancient Egyptian thought. The king's role was to set ma'at in place of isfet, or disorder. Disorder was most likely to come about at times of passage, such as from one year to the next, or the passing of one king to another. Ma'at was sometimes personified as a deity of reciprocity, justice, and truth. She was the daughter of the creator god. Other times, Ma'at was simply an abstract thought. To once again quote the Encyclopedia Britannica, the king's offering of Ma'at to a deity encapsulated the relationship between humanity, the king, and the gods. As the representative of humanity, he returned to the gods the order that came from them, and of which they were themselves a part. The idea of ma'at can be seen in the beliefs of the underworld. The ancient Egyptians believed in balance among all things. Thus, as part of the long and complex journey to the underworld, one's heart was weighed against that of a feather of ma'at. But that's a story we will tell in a later episode. For our purposes today, it's important to know that the underworld exists as a place separate from Earth and the realm of the living. The ancient Egyptian religion was a polytheistic one, meaning that they worshipped multiple gods, and as with many polytheistic religions, no one god was all-knowing or all-powerful. Instead, each had their own strengths, weaknesses, and powers, although they were all significantly stronger and lived far longer than any mortals. They were generally benevolent, though not always so, and their favor could not be assumed. Notably, warrior goddess and mother of all gods, Nath, Sekhmet, goddess of war, and war goddess, Newt, were all strongly ambivalent characters, while the trickster god, Set, was actively antagonistic. For the most part, the roles of the gods were somewhat fluid. Ra was always the god of the sun and Hathor the goddess of women, but many of the other gods often had roles that shifted, changed, or even overlapped. These deities had animal manifestations, and for male gods, the most important forms were that of the falcon and the bull, while for goddesses, the most important forms were the cow, cobra, vulture, and lioness. 
These aspects could even show parts of their personality, such as a goddess being seen as a lioness when she's being particularly fierce, and a cat when she's feeling rather kind. Gods and goddesses were mostly represented as humans. In fact, many deities only had a human form. It was most respectful to show the gods in human form, and therefore, in order to show their animal aspects, they were often depicted with animal heads on a human body. In contrast, creatures such as the Sphinx with a human head and lion's body were reserved for the king. When it comes to ancient Egyptian mythology, religious discourse was recorded in hymns, rituals, and temple scenes, but rarely in narrative form. This makes it somewhat difficult to understand the stories as they were originally meant to be told. However, just because these stories are rare does not mean they do not exist. Oftentimes, they are told in present tense or as a tableau rather than a simple narrative story. While the most popular version of the tale I'm going to tell you today was written down by the Greek scholars Plutarch and Diodorus, these likely did not reflect the true version of the Osiris myth that was worshipped throughout history. For a more accurate version, we look to the pyramid texts. To quote Mythopedia, the pyramid texts, which date back to the late Old Kingdom and the first intermediate period, 2660 to 2066 BCE, took their name from their place of origin. These texts contain fragmentary mentions of the murder of Osiris, as well as Isis and Nephthys' subsequent search for his body. These texts make it clear that Osiris was either drowned or was thrown into water after his death, offering partial confirmation of the later versions of the story. So... With all of that background now underway, <laughs> it was a lot. It was a big info dump, but it was, one, important, but also I just think it's really interesting and I wanted to share it. Oh, don't you worry, champ. This is a history episode. <laughs> oh, good. I can't wait for your story. All right. So I used as many resources as I could and pieced together all of them into one coherent story. So let's talk about Set and his jealousy of his brother Osiris. Long, long ago, the sun god Ra ruled over Earth and all who lived there. He was a strong ruler, but he was constantly afraid of someone trying to take his throne. As he was sometimes able to do, he one day had a vision of the future. In this vision, he came to realize that should the sky goddess Newt have any children they would overthrow him as king. Ra was furious. He would not be usurped by the unborn child of a goddess. So he issued a command. In his booming voice, he decreed that Newt should not bear a child on any day of the year. Distraught, Newt ran away. She knew there was nothing she could do to change the curse. She wasn't powerful enough to do so. Heartbroken and devastated, she went to the god of wisdom, Toth, and begged him to help her find a way out of this curse. Clever and cunning as always, Toth had a plan. He went to the moon god Khonsu and challenged him to a game of checkers. But this was no ordinary game. Toth challenged Khonsu with a bet. For every game Toth won, 
Kansu would have to give up a small portion of his life. Game after game after game, Toth won, and Kansu had to give over a small portion of his moonlight. Eventually, Kansu gave up. He admitted defeat, and he refused to play anymore. Toth was pleased. You see, he'd won so many games that he was able to make five days of moonlight out of his winnings. This meant that he could add five new days to the year. You see, at this point, the year consisted of 360 days, the same amount of days as the number of degrees in a circle. But Toth was able to add five new ones. Five days that previously did not exist at all. For Kansu, this meant he could no longer shine as brightly as Ra did as the sun in the sky, for he had been weakened, and now he had to wax and wane his moonlight as the month went on. For humans, this meant that these five miraculous new days each year were days of celebration. Festivals were held each year on these days to honor the gods. For Newt, this meant that she could finally give birth to children. And so she did. Fathered by Geb, god of the earth, she gave birth to Osiris on the first festival day, Horus the Elder on the second, then Set, Nephthys, and Isis. Though it was her son Set who tore himself from his mother's womb and was thus born into existence. This unusual birth would foreshadow his role as god of chaos and disorder. Realizing what she had done, Ra was furious. In a rage, he decreed that Newt should no longer be able to see her husband Geb and demanded that her father Shu keep them apart forever. It was a terribly steep price to pay for her actions. But Newt did not for one second regret what she had done. She had created life. She had given birth to beautiful, miraculous children. When they came of age, as expected, the children married, Osiris to Isis and Set to Nephthys. Although it is said that Set and Nephthys formed such a strong bond in the womb that they were already married upon their birth. Osiris, through his wife's influence and cunning, eventually became king, replacing Ra. The two of them taught the humans the art of agriculture, baking, brewing, art, music, and poetry, and thus allowed the Egyptians to become a full-fledged society. But alas, for each good thing Osiris did for the world, his brother Set became more and more envious. Why should the people love his brother? Why should they fawn over him like he's the only good thing in all of existence? Set was just as much a god as Osiris, so why did he not command the same respect as his brother? Jealous and angry that his brother overshadowed everything in his life, Set crafted a plan. If his brother were gone, would the people not love him instead? Without Osiris, the throne would have to go to Set, and he would be the ruler of all instead of his pious, perfect brother. Yes, that might be just the solution he needed. 
Osiris went off to spread his knowledge to all the other people and left his wife Isis in charge while he was away. This, this is when Set would put his plan into motion. He gathered 72 conspirators and worked in secret to assassinate his brother. He took precise measurements of Osiris's body and then created an incredibly beautiful and ornate box of cedar, ebony, gold, and ivory matching his brother's measurements exactly. When his brother returned from his trip, Set was among the first to greet him. Warmly and excitedly, he welcomed his brother back home. In fact, he was so happy to see his brother return safely that he decided to throw the most lavish and incredible feast he could imagine. He even invited his friends. About 72 or so, to be precise. As food lined the tables and attendees danced and drank... Set waited. He watched his brother closely, and when Osiris was finally relaxed and full of wine, Set made an announcement. See before me this great box. I shall bestow it to whomever can fit inside of it perfectly. One by one, each guest crawled inside of the box, but all of them found that it did not quite fit correctly. Finally, the king himself took a turn. He climbed into the box and stretched himself out. And the guest waited with bated breath. Aha! Osiris cried. The fit is perfect. The chest will be mine. No sooner had he spoken than Set and his conspirators executed their plan. Yes, brother, the box is a perfect fit. Set hissed through a wicked smile. And as promised, the box will be yours forever. Set slammed the lid of the box shut and his conspirators nailed it closed. They did all of this before Osiris could do a thing to stop them. They sealed the box with molten lead, making sure no air could get in or out, and tossed it deep into the Nile and watched as it floated downstream. Isis could feel it the moment her husband's last breath left his body. Sensing the truth in her feelings, she immediately went into a deep mourning. Osiris's box settled at the bank of a river far, far downstream, and around his body grew a beautiful, tall tree. The tree was magnificent, and King Malkander and Queen Athenaeus used it as a pillar in their palace. How could they not? They had to possess the finest tree they'd ever laid eyes on. So they cut it down, and in so doing unknowingly took a section that contained Osiris back to the palace. Isis, now desperate to find her husband's body, began to search, but no matter how far or wide she looked, she could find no trace of him. One day, some children playing by the river told her they'd seen a chest floating down the Nile. They showed her where they'd seen the chest float away, and Isis followed it. Eventually, she found the spot where he had landed but Osiris was not there. Devastated once again by the loss of her husband, Isis sat on the river's edge in melancholy silence. After months of searching for his body, the only lead she'd had was ripped away in a moment. Coincidentally, two of the queen's handmaidens were walking along the river's edge at the same time. 
When they noticed the goddess sitting on the riverbank, they were struck by her incredible beauty. They walked up to her and began to speak with the mysterious woman. After a brief conversation, the handmaidens went home to the palace, but in their time with Isis, they were touched by her magic, and they left smelling of an indescribable but wonderful perfume. When they returned to the palace, the queen immediately asked what perfume they were wearing, and the handmaidens told her of their meeting with this strange woman on the riverbank. And so, when the queen met Isis, she did not know who the woman was. But this was good. It would allow Isis to work for the queen in disguise and learn more about the tree that she knew deep down held her husband's remains. So Isis worked as a nurse to one of the queen's children, and she quickly became enamored with the small child. She decided to make the child immortal, but as she was passing his body through the flames to burn off his mortal flesh, the queen came in and, not understanding the gift that Isis was going to bestow, she pushed her out of the way and the child lost his chance at immortality. Enraged, Isis revealed herself as the goddess that she was. Frightened, the king and queen fell to their knees before the goddess and offered her anything and everything she could want. All Isis wanted was the tree, and so they gave it to her willingly. Isis took the body of her husband away and used her magic, along with the help of Toth, to revive him. However, she was only able to revive him long enough to conceive a child, the god Horus. After this, Isis... Nephthys, Anubis, and Toth embalmed and mummified Osiris's body and hid it away. But Set would not be deterred. He discovered the body, and in a fit of rage tore it into fourteen different pieces and scattered all of those pieces across Egypt so that no one would be able to revive his brother again. Nephthys, feeling for her sister's loss, helped her search for Osiris's body once again. Together, they collected all but one of the pieces. The final one, his phallus, was eaten by an alligator and lost forever. Eventually, his body was once again reassembled with the addition of a wax replacement for the missing part. But Osiris would never again be able to move among the land of the living. Instead, he was to live forever in the underworld as Lord of the Dead. In order to stop Set from once again defiling her husband's body, Isis had wax figures made of each of the pieces of Osiris. She buried them separately and charged priests with the task of defending these body parts at all costs. Each priest thought that he was guarding the true burial site of Osiris, and so Set never again was able to find his brother's body. The son that Isis conceived with Osiris was Horus the Younger, and he would eventually rise to such power that he would take the throne away from his uncle Set. But that, dear friend, is a fascinating story for another day. And that is the story of Set and his brother Osiris. Wow. The ladies had to do a lot of work in this story. <laughs> they did. They did. I, it's always described when you look it up as the story of Set and Osiris. And actually, it's even more often described as the story of Horus and his battle with Set. 
But it's such a big story about ISIS and her journey. And I've heard it, you know, I, I knew about the story of ISIS searching for her husband's body, but I had no idea how big a role Toth or Nephthys actually played in the story. And also how awesome Toth was. I knew he was the god of wisdom and all of that, but man, if someone needs his help, he's there. And he's the smartest guy in the room. I wonder how much of that view of kind of the men working very hard and the women being put on the back burner is from the original manifestation of the story or how much of it is from archaeologists, primarily European, I think, took the story and then highlighted it that way. Yeah, and it was later told by... Uh, let me look at my notes. I know it was Diodorus and... Oh, yes. I'm sorry. You mentioned by the Greeks. Yes. Um, I can't find it in my notes. Sorry. Go back 20 minutes and listen to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really good at research. But no, but I agree. I think, like I said earlier, how there weren't really a ton of written firsthand accounts or written versions of these stories in a narrative sense. It was hymns visual depictions, tableaus, uh, you know, decoding the hieroglyph, hieroglyphics. Um, and so it's really possible that it's really possible that there was a totally different context to the story. Again, given that a lot of that art was kind of an artistic representation of day-to-day life. Right. That didn't reflect exactly what day-to-day life was like you know like the same way that when you take a really formal family portrait at like the mall it doesn't look like the family portrait that you would take candidly you know like right right. same people different context by the way the greek scholars were plutarch and diodorus oh my god thank you you're the best you're welcome plutarch and diodorus how did i remember the harder one because it was harder because you practiced (laughs) saying it you're probably right i cannot get out of my head that Osiris had to walk around all put together, except for one very, very faithful piece. I was wondering when you were going to bring that up. Yeah, it's very much called out in the story that 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 one piece was eaten by an alligator or sometimes a snake or just missing. It is just very clear that one piece is gone. Very nicely, Isis um, at least made him a wax version. See, I swear, when you were telling the story and you said they found all the pieces but one, I thought that you were going to say the women found all the pieces except his phallus. And we're like, eh, this is good enough. <laughs> <laughs> we got all we need out of this. We can just, you know, 13 out of 14. That's pretty good. That's what I thought was going to happen. And then, you know, there was an alligator, but that's fine too. I also am fascinated by this idea that Osiris was put together. He became Lord of the Underworld. But somehow, Set just could not find him. Isis tricked him and made him think that she hadn't found him again. Um, And so she secretly mummified him, but then hid 14 of his body parts all over. And then made priests live breathe, fight, and die to protect what they thought was the true burial site of Osiris. So there were 14 theoretically true burial sites that possibly were shifting as time went on. So Set, for whatever reason, 
maybe as smart. Maybe he used all of his intelligence for that one plot. It's fascinating on so many levels because you think of a deity, he would have access to the underworld and just know, but apparently he didn't. And I love the idea of Isis taking mortals like little Lego men and being like, (laughs) you guard this now. You go here and you go here and you will die to protect this wax penis. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. We're laughing, but also at the beginning of this story, there's such a fascinating struggle of a woman wanting to have a child and a man being very, very afraid of his own death. Mm -hmm. Which are such aggressively mortal goings on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see it all throughout history. Um, it's actually not a man, but I think of Catherine the Great, um, who was this incredible ruler of Russia. I really want to cover her in an episode. I know we don't always do history. I'm about to do history. I'm excited <laughs> for you to do history. But basically, her biggest downfall was that she was so unable to deal with the idea of no longer being ruler that she never properly raised her son to take over for her and so when she died he couldn't maintain her dynasty and it all crumbled and so you just see in humans this idea of being afraid of what happens next being afraid of i can't even think beyond what i'm doing now or i can't plan for the future because i'm so afraid of losing what i have the idea of even even thinking about it is too much that's pretty common though the idea of kind of the generational ebb and flow it it's often seen you know when people grow up not having access to certain things when they have children they overcompensate and give that child too much and then they don't learn how to get it on their own of course that's not a hard and fast rule but it's it's studied in psychology actually a fair amount so Mm -hmm. it makes sense that it would be in our myths every which way so the last thing i want to talk about with set before we jump into your awesome story is just explaining his animal manifestation because i mentioned how a lot of the gods had an animal manifestation his is actually an unknown animal we don't know what it's supposed to be okay so here's the quote In art, Set is usually depicted as an enigmatic creature referred to by Egyptologists as the Set animal, a beast resembling no known creature, although it could be seen as a composite of an aardvark, a donkey, a jackal, or a fennec fox. The animal has a curved snout, long rectangular ears, a thin forked tail, and a canine body with sprouted fur tufts in an inverted arrow shape. Sometimes, Set is depicted as a human with the distinctive head. Some early Egyptologists proposed that this was a stylized representation of the giraffe owing to the large flat-topped, quote, horns, which seemed to correspond to giraffe horns. The Egyptians themselves, however, made a distinction between the giraffe and the Set animal. So this may not have been the case. During the late period, Set is depicted as a donkey, or as having a donkey's head. 
end quote. So basically, early on, Set is depicted as this animal that people have been trying for years to figure out what animal it is, and it seems like the conclusion might just be that it's the Set animal. And my personal theory, based off of my limited research, is it kind of makes sense that he would be this weird enigmatic creature, given that he's the god of chaos. And if the Egyptians were so... They, they valued order so much, of course, the god of disorder would be this creature that doesn't make sense, that isn't orderly. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to jump on the late period, him being a donkey later, because, okay, think of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. In Midsummer Night's Dream, we have Bottom. He's one of the comedic characters, a fool. He gets a donkey, donkey's head. And throughout the play, he represents folly, although he is very intelligent in different moments. But overarchingly, he is a strongly comedic character. So we tend to associate donkeys with foolishness. Mm -hmm. But as a human that grew up with horses and has some familiarity with donkeys, they're quite smart and very stubborn. Oh, my God. Really quick story, and then we'll jump into yours. This episode is going to be so long. Um, I was in the Outer Banks last year, and we did one of their tours to see the wild horses. And it was late in the season. So actually, this was two years ago. This is the year my sister got married. But we were doing the tour, and the tour guide was saying of all the horses, the one that everyone was so afraid of. So the way that horses work is they have harems where there's the male horse, and, and it you know, that male horse, depending on how strong and powerful he is, will have mares that are connected with him. Did you just describe horses as having harems? That's what they're called, I think. Continue. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. It might not be called a harem, but I vaguely remember that being... I don't know enough about horses. Rowan has horses. I just admire them. Um, I don't pay attention to horse harems, so I'm not saying it's true or not. (laughs) The whole point of this story is that the horse that had the most women was the donkey (laughs) because he was such a bully that he would, like, bite. Like, he was tiny, and he would just bite and attack the, the male horses who tried to get in his way, and he was by far the most feared animal in wow. that area. It was it was really funny to see. I learned from a very wonderful writer that uh, when they, at the barn that he worked at, when they did uh, tours where they would take people out for horse rides, they would often put differently abled riders on mules or donkeys mm. because they are so smart and stubborn that they won't, they aren't at, at, at as much risk of bringing that rider out into a, a more perilous situation because they're very mm. cautious. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about donkeys in relation to Egyptian myths. But yes, I just we are. That, that was interesting that we think of donkeys as being rather foolish with their big ears and adorable faces, but they're quite smart. So it makes sense. And that nasty. They'll bite you. Oh, so mean. That <laughs> that a clever god would be associated with a donkey. Mm-hmm. He was. He was associated with the donkey. So speaking of clever people, all I know is the name of the story you're telling me today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to transition us from 
donkeys to foxes. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Um, today, I'm telling the story of the Fox Sisters and the birth of spiritualism. So for all my sweet, spooky ghost friends, I bring you today the story of the Fox Sisters. Their story is said to be the birth of modern spiritualism, at least in the U.S., this is just the first baby toe dip into ghost stories on this podcast, so I'm going to go a little hard on history for a moment. You're welcome. This is going to be the longest episode we have by, like, my estimation is it's going to be, like, 30 minutes longer than any other episode we've done. It's our podcast, and we can do what we want. Okay. <laughs> the reason I'm doing this story for our Envy episode is kind of similar to how I ended up doing Sleeping Beauty on our Sloth episode. I definitely went a little A to C on this. Envy makes me think of seeking fame and renown. And this story is of three sisters' journey in fame. And I wanted to learn more about it. So, modern American spiritualism is a religious movement centered around Christian teachings about the afterlife, that the human soul survives after death, that the morality of a person determines what happens to their spirit, and that there is an all-knowing God souls come in contact with after death. In spiritualist practice, the afterlife or spirit world can be accessed by mediums and clairvoyants, sometimes with the help of spirit guides, dead folks and or angels who aid a spiritualist in contacting the other side but are also unseen themselves. The idea is that the spirits of the dead want to communicate with the living and that these spirits have inside knowledge because they passed on to the other side. This knowledge may include portenting the future, insight into morals and ethics, or a special understanding of God and the afterlife. Spiritualism often involved mediums exhibiting shows of levitation, rapping, materialization, and more. These physical manifestations were the natural theatrical sensationalization that became necessary to market feats of claimed clairvoyance or telepathy. Small gatherings exhibiting spiritualism were incredibly popular and known as seances, but there were much larger exhibitions that drew crowds of spectators. Historians say the birth of modern spiritualism was on March 31st, 1848, in Hydesville, New York. That's very specific. So I'm going to contextualize what was going on. In 1848, it is the early Victorian era. That year, the Mexican-American War came to an end and the California Gold Rush was booming. This was a full 17 years before slavery was, quote, abolished by the 13th Amendment, only to be replaced by the American prison system as a form of involuntary servitude. 1848 is also a time in our country when Americans felt the effects of the Second Great Awakening. This is the name for the Protestant religion's expansion through revivals, and particularly emotional preaching, and this spread numerous reform movements. Shakers, Mormonism, and Millerism were a few of the new religions cropping up at the time. Hydesville in particular, was part of an area of upstate New York known as the 
burned over district. The Second Great Awakening hit this area, and a religious fervor seemed to light the area on fire. Death, as ever, was keenly felt by every American. According to History.net, nearly one-third of all city-born infants died before reaching their first birthday, and young mothers, bearing an average of five children each, were often fatally struck with purple fever. Intense urbanization had created a new set of difficulties for the impoverished factory working community. After all, the first phase of the American Industrial Revolution was only just past. At the same time, railroads were driving western expansion and Morris's telegraph was a new invention that allowed ideas to transfer through wire completely unseen. The electric light bulb was not far off on the horizon, and Darwin's introduction of evolution was only a few years away. This allowed spiritualism to be easily grouped with new scientific advancements. While some found comfort in time-worn religious doctrines, others cast it aside believing it no longer fit their needs, and still others were cynically disenfranchised by the passing of reported judgment days that never came. The first wave of spiritualism would never formally organize as a religion of its own, though was sometimes considered one. Specific spiritualist church services were held and doctrines were set down by one organization or another throughout the course of history, including the National Spiritualist Association, formed in 1893. It makes sense that the first wave of spiritualism might attract and seek to include people of various Christian faiths, because wanting to know what happens after death is not limited to any one world religion. Just look at Tracy's story today. <laughs> In an America that was, and still is Christian, it makes sense that the movement would appear inclusive to the dominant religious culture of white Christianity. By 1854, there were said to be one to two million American followers of spiritualism. To quote History.net, spiritualism, with its guiding principle of the equality of all souls, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, or religious affiliation, was inspired by and inspired the growth of other reformist movements at the time. Like the women behind those causes, female mediums broke the rules of Victorian propriety and spoke out, albeit in a trance voice, and many became financially independent, encouraging others to follow suit. It is no wonder that there soon came to be a close link between spiritualism, temperance, abolition, and women's rights. I want to highlight here that most of the research I uncovered either completely focused on or at least centered the white American experience. Many historians link spiritualism with the abolitionist movement, which was no doubt helped along by the presence of so many Quakers. I want to emphasize in particular how easy for me it was to learn that the majority of mediums at the time were female, referring to white women. It wasn't until I searched quote, 
Black spiritualism in the U.S., specifically that I was able to learn about the numerous Black women who were prominent in the spiritualist movement at the time. Spiritualist J.C. Street is quoted as saying the movement was, quote, non-secretarian and free from the, quote, unscrupulous rich white men who got in the way of, quote, spiritual progress. It makes sense that Black spiritualists often utilized trance-speaking as a means of speaking truth to power while entering segregated intellectual and religious spaces. Among those women, Sojourn Truth, who discovered the movement in 1856, was already a renowned suffragist and abolitionist. Rebecca Cox Jackson, who claimed to have vision since childhood, wrote the autobiography Gifts of Power, which recounted her life as a medium. She famously created spaces that centered black women, including a seance circle in her own home. Billed as Mrs. Hattie E. Wilson, colored trans speaker, the mid-1800s also marked a time Harriet E. Wilson utilized her fiction writing and lecturing career to campaign for abolition, women's rights, and education reform. In fact, she went on to open a spiritualist Sunday school in Boston, and through her career as a clairvoyant became one of the first black women to teach in a private school. It seems to me that spiritualism in communities of color, when it exists, is often completely separated from the widely publicized white branch of spiritualism from that period. Or at least, Google now separates that information through Google terms that I am still unfamiliar with. Spiritualism is also renowned for bringing on a wave of psychic research with magicians like Harry Houdini specifically working against the hopeful scientific community to prove spiritualist frauds. As those frauds were exposed, the 20th century saw spiritualism fall out of style in the United States. It did, however, fare much better in Britain, France, and Brazil. Just as spiritualism was encouraged by the massive death and grief brought on by the Civil War, these practices would appear and reappear in one form or another surrounding wars, World War I being a peak example. When the New Age movement appeared in America in the 1970s, brought on potentially by the Vietnam War, spiritualism was born again. Now known as channelers, people would contact the dead, extraterrestrials, and, quote, ascended masters. Before I dive into our story, I just want to frame it like this. We're in New York. It's still the Victorian era. Women aren't allowed to expose skin or have a life without a man without being judged. Black Americans have no political power. Science is on the verge. People can now communicate with each other across the country with no physical means of representing that. Could you imagine talking to someone across the country? I know. (laughs) (laughs) 
But we have the gold rush, which is people digging up literal earth to access small amounts of wealth at moments. We have the Industrial Revolution, where people are sending children to work with insane machinery to churn out vast amounts of product being paid no money (laughs) to work Mm -hmm. in dangerous conditions. So the northeast portion of our country is campaigning that, you know, slavery is bad because they now wanted access to the same free labor that the South had in the agrarian society. And all of a sudden... We have spiritualism, where people can, quote, talk to the dead whomever they want and say what they really want to say. And that gives disenfranchised Americans not only social capital, but literal currency. If your mind isn't blown yet, I need you to get on the level. (laughs) Because this is... A chunk of history that I could not imagine living in. No wonder there was so much religious fervor when every moment of daily life was absolutely uproariously complicated. Am I talking about 2020? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It sure sounds like you are. So now that I've gone on that personal tirade because I want you all to feel what I was feeling when my mind was exploding at midnight when I was researching this not long ago. (laughs) We're going to go right back to the beginning, in the bedroom of two young women in Hydesville, New York. Margareta and Catherine spent many hours together entertaining themselves in their upstate New York home. Maggie was nearly 15, and her younger sister Kate had reached the bright age of 11 and a half. Their mother, particularly superstitious, was easy prey for two imaginative girls eager to create entertainment of their own. They planned to convince her that their home was haunted by a spirit. Tying strings to apples and dropping them down the stairs created footsteps that resounded through the house. Sure. But using that technique, there was evidence of their mischief should anyone go looking for apples. So, the pair learned a neat trick. They popped and cracked their toes with no visible movement, making resounding raps that echoed through the house. As they kept their feet against the hardwood floor, which amplified the effect, the sound seemed to come from the ether. Now the game was afoot, so to speak. Uh, Boo. (laughs) (laughs) On the eve of April Fool's Day, Kate and Maggie performed for their mother. Kate sat up in bed, asking to speak to the spirit of the house so that the pair might rap out answers. Their mother was enthralled, asking the otherworldly being to rap twice if it was an injured spirit. And so it did. The pair of sisters, thinking they'd concocted quite a prank, until their mother asked the spirit if it would keep rapping once she brought the neighbors over to see. The girls panicked. 
for two young women, the ruse was already too entangled. To admit that they'd been tormenting their mother while she was so wrapped up in the trick would surely mean severe punishment. And as the neighbors bustled into the house to hear about the spirit, the girls dug their way into the lie that would change their lives. Margaret felt guilty from the onset. As word spread around their town that the pair could commune with the spirit of the murdered peddler whose bones may or may not have been discovered in their basement, the family was swarmed by believers and reviled by evangelists. The Fox family was asked to leave their Methodist Episcopal congregation as the belief that they were witches took hold. All the while, Visitors stayed in their home until nightfall, eager to hear the women commune with the dead. The situation escalated again upon the arrival of their adult sister, Leah. A divorced 33-year-old woman living in a time that afforded her no rights, Leah saw through her sister's prank. But rather than telling their mother the truth, she took the girls and capitalized on their talents. By this point, the pair had faced examination from local attorney E.E. Lewis. He interviewed former tenants, spoke to neighbors, and asked the girls to describe the events which transpired at the farmhouse. By May of that year, when he published the pamphlet, A Report of the Mysterious Noises Heard in the House of John D. Fox in Hydesville, Arcadia, Wayne County, the young girls proved that they could stand up to the scrutiny of their educated elders. Utilizing a system crafted during the Hydesville seances, the trio associated the number of raps with letters or simple questions, allowing paying customers to communicate with the dead in more detail. System refined, Leah moved her younger sisters to a new home in Rochester, New York, where she charged a dollar per head for visitors to join the seance. Lit by candlelight in darkened rooms, it was no surprise that their trickery captured the hearts and imaginations of the audience preoccupied with death. The world was changing and expanding in horrifying ways, and every visitor seemed to have a friend or relative they dearly missed. The success of this show allowed the three women to perform on massive stages in New York, New England, and further. When they first came to New York, taking up residence at Barnum's Hotel on the corner of Broadway and Maiden Lane, the publication Scientific American scoffed, calling the girls spiritual knockers from Rochester. But without fail, they attracted massive gatherings, and the same journalists who once denounced them were suddenly believers. That didn't stop the women from facing death threats of their own. At one theater, a bomb was planted, and Maggie, who took on the bulk of the performance work, seemed to be at constant risk of attack. She narrowly escaped kidnapping, and criticism followed them to every town. And of course, the show itself was not without flaw. During one performance in Buffalo, cushions were placed under the girl's feet. This predictably kept the spirits away. Without Leah's death spinning, this might have been the end of the income upon which they all relied. 
But the elder sister raved against the audience, claiming there were non-believers in their midst, that such suspicion would be sensed by the spirits, and of course they would never come. Even when they did come, the proceedings were sometimes fraught. Visitors remarked that the young girls contacted Benjamin Franklin so often that he must be hanging around the pair at all times, while others pointed out that the Founding Father's spelling took a drastic decline after his death. At this point, the movement would not be stopped by simple skeptics citing history books. In October of 1850, the New Haven Journal reported that there were 40 families in New York who claimed to share the Fox family's gifts. By 1851, the publication Spiritual World reported more than 100 mediums in New York State alone. All the while, the guilt was eating away at Maggie, and she was becoming withdrawn and moody. It seemed that Kate, much younger when this all started, was taken in by their own ruse, but Maggie could not abandon her self-loathing. One night, in a darkened room for their usual seance, Maggie rapped out, I bid you farewell, seeming to say that the spirits had finished their communication with the young women. She managed to stop their show for a full 12 days, but the three women needed to eat, they needed to keep a roof over their heads, and Maggie's sisters were relying on her. The trio traveled to Europe. Leah was financially stable and managed to utilize the acclaim and stability that would keep her from being a mere divorcee. Kate now performed shows in Britain in which the spirits could be seen just as easily as heard. The youngest Fox sister went on to marry Henry D. Jenkin seemingly claiming a happy life for herself. But Maggie would never achieve anything quite that starry-eyed. Desperately in love with famed Arctic explorer Elisha Kane, she agreed to an exchanging of rings and common-law marriage after his wealthy family denounced her as a common fraud. Kane tried for years to figure out the truth behind Maggie's spirit rapping, and he traveled so often that their relationship was relegated to the long-distance sharing of letters. He passed away in Cuba before they could make their marriage more official, and the Kane family kept Maggie from the funeral. But she got her revenge. Using her fame to publish The Love Life of Dr. Kane, all the letters he sent to her were out for the world to read. Maggie and her sister Kate fell into drink, fading from the world of spiritualism which they'd created. Enraged that Kate's children were being taken from her on the claims that her alcoholism made her an unfit mother, Maggie pulled her usual trick. She again sought the public's attention to fight her family's detractors. An older Maggie accepted the fee of $1,500 to appear at the New York Academy of Music, where she stood on stage and denounced spiritualism and the lies they'd spun. As she purloined the older sister which peddled them, Maggie demonstrated their tricks by popping her bare foot on a stool so the audience might see and hear her toe crack. 
My sister Katie and myself were very young children when this horrible deception began, Maggie exclaimed. A great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them. It is a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me some years ago when I lived at 42nd Street, and I did some rappings for them. I made the spirit rap on the chair, and one of the ladies cried out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. Of course, that was pure imagination. The New York Herald reported of the show. There stood a black-robed, sharp-faced widow working her big toe and solemnly declaring that it was in this way she created the excitement that has driven so many persons to suicide or insanity. One moment it was ludicrous. The next it was weird. As alcoholic Kate sat in the audience, confirming the truths that her elder conspirator reported, supposedly irreparable damage was done to the spiritualist movement. (laughs) But that just wasn't true. It continued on without the pair absolutely unhindered. Maggie did, after all, take money for speaking at the music hall. How could she be trusted? Only one year later, Maggie recounted her confession, realizing spirit contact was her only means of income. This switch upset spiritualists further, and they barred their founder from various societies. Still unable to give up the ear of the masses in face of conflict, Maggie used the pseudonym Mrs. Spencer to reveal the tricks of professional mediums, but she never achieved the fame she once held. Maggie never reconciled with Sister Leah, who died in 1890, Kate would pass in the midst of a drinking spree two years later, and Maggie would follow eight months behind in March of 1893. Both sisters, having created a multi-million dollar industry that survives to this day, passed away in poverty. I can't imagine taking a less impressive talent and turning it into a more profitable enterprise. Yo, you're definitely right. The toe-popping thing, even though I have no problem with feet, does a little bit freak me out. It's just, like, I can crack my toes. I mean, not on command. Like, I can, the same way you can crack your knuckles. But, like, that is the least impressive thing a person can do, and they turned that into a national phenomenon that is still going on today what, 200 years later? I mean, can you imagine taking a less, like, I just, that is so well done. I mean, well done, Fox sisters. They were also 15 and 11 and a half. Well, and you said Leah was 33 when... Yeah, Leah swooped in and was like, I can make some money with this. I'm doing this voice for you. I hope you know. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay, so hold on. Let's, Let's talk facts for a second. Because Leah swooped in and really did, I think, make this enterprise what it was. The spiritualism movement was 20 years before vaudeville. And it allowed women and a few minority clairvoyants to improve their lives and defy social norms through what could be argued as the first major American cultural export. 
Oh. Mm-hmm. I had not thought of it that way. I guess it was an export. I had always known that spiritualism was really big in America, but it was big across the world. I guess I didn't... Huh. I never clicked that it started here and was our export to the world because you think of so many things that are spiritual and spooky being brought in from other countries where their stories are much older than ours are here. So, Right. And that's not to say that there weren't I wish I had a different word, but spiritualist practices going on at the time, meaning practices of peoples that involved the dead. But spiritualism, meaning the American movement, was one of America's exports. We primarily export culture. I mean, Hollywood is just a movie factory and we... That's true. It is... What was that chart going around that the arts and media is the second largest source of American wealth after retail. Oh. Yeah. So this is kind of the beginning of that. Tracy, I have a fact for you and also for me in particular. Interesting note. Ouija boards, which were used in spiritualism, the Ouija board itself, meaning the game, was filed for patent on May 28, 1890 by Elijah Bond. That's your birthday. <laughs> That's my birthday. Uh, long before my existence, but my birthday nonetheless. About 103 years or so before, but still. Nah. <laughs> These boards with yes, no, and the alphabet printed on them were already in use by mediums, specifically those who claimed to help people speak to dead relatives during the Civil War era, at least as early as 1886. But... It was this patent that gave birth to the parlor game of which I now own so many versions. You do. <laughs> so many. Um you I don't I don't know if you know this story. You've seen my apartment out here, Tracy. I have a couple Ouija boards up as decoration. Uh my former roommate's boyfriend was afraid to come into my room because of the Ouija board that you could kind of see from outside the door. And I've never been more grateful for a piece of <laughs> cardboard. Not for yeah, him in it's... particular. He was a lovely person. I just don't like people in my room. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a good deterrent. It can be, I guess. Buy a Ouija board to keep strangers. What? No. <laughs> Buy a Ouija board to keep strangers. <laughs> I was going to say buy a Ouija board to keep strangers out of your room, but Ouija boards could, in theory, also bring strangers into your room. A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. <laughs> okay, so speaking of modern spiritualism, I highly recommend season one, episode one of the show Penn and Teller Bullshit from 2003. It is one of my favorite little looks at modern spiritualist swindlers because, to be clear, there are people, even now, extorting nice, often grieving folks by preying on their emotional needs for money. Which is not to say 
that no one has ever spoken to a ghost or to the dead. That is not my point. In fact, I really, really hope that ghosts exist because if they don't, then I am an idiot that goes on ghost tours all over the world for no reason. (laughs) 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 I myself am very available for ghost stories. I look for ghosts. I want it so badly. So consider this the first willing and fable request for your personal ghost stories. <laughs> Please, any any fun spooky stories you have, we will take them and then maybe read them back to you. We'll see, but we will read them to ourselves also. Yeah, we'll get there eventually, I hope. And it'll be nice to have stories so that I'm not just wandering around in the dark trying to debunk ghosts so that I die like a 1982 poltergeist movie victim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I hope you don't go like that. Uh, or, you know, what a way to go, you know? That's true. Uh, yes. uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. This was a big history dump, Tracy. We We did the thing. We did. All right. We have Twitter. We have Instagram. We have a contact page on our website. We have a Gmail, willingandfable at gmail.com. So please send us your ghost stories. Please. Yeah, we'd be tickled. And I'll read them in the wee hours of the night to spook myself out, and Tracy will only read them during the day. 100% correct, yes. I will only read them (laughs) in the morning with my cup of coffee. (laughs) All right, I think that'll about do it for this episode on Envy. Yeah, so now it's just our little wrap-up. Hey, Rowan. Hey, Tracy. Tell me something good. My something good for today. I got a package from a very close family friend named Catherine. And... It was chock-a-block full of books to help with the podcast. I was actually on the phone with you, Tracy, when Mm -hmm. I opened it. She screamed. I did scream. It it was a surprise. I love surprises, but this was ultimate surprise here. Mm -hmm. And there were... There's an encyclopedia about mythology. There's uh, Irish fables there's a book that i'm not going to tell you what it's called because i'm using it for the next episode i'm I'm so excited excited about this box i actually have been toting it back and forth in my car so that i have access to every single book no matter which apartment i'm staying at which is ridiculous because i don't need all the books at once but here we are <laughs> and I just it cheered me up so much and it also made me feel really validated because mm-hmm. she has known me for my whole life she is my mother's long long time friend they're thick as thieves and it just felt so kind and supportive that she sent me all these wonderful books all I want in the world is used books that have book smell Mm-hmm. All right. Tracy. Yes? Tell me something good. All right. My something good is that we did our first Fan Art Friday. 
And I did a little drawing of the podcast, and that's why we drank. I drew M and Christine. And they liked it, and they commented on it, and they actually reposted it to their Instagram and tagged me and Rowan and Willing and Fable, and they were just so lovely and supportive, and so along the same vein of feeling seen and validated. It was just, it made me so happy. I've looked up to them since they were a tiny baby podcast like we are, and watched them grow and and expand and become this amazing podcast i saw their very first ever live show in philly and i remember that when you went mm-hmm. we were freaking out when they reposted your drawing it was so cool and it was just so sweet so um that made my whole week it was just really 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 nice they did not have to be as nice as they were and they were so nice and go listen to and that's why we drink because they do uh true crime and ghost stories so if you like us you will love them Yes, I listen to them whenever I'm commuting. And actually, I don't have to commute right now. So it's really interesting getting to listen to them while I'm pottering around the house. <laughs> I, that's what I do. I just do chores when I'm folding laundry or doing dishes or anything like that. Yeah. And hey, on the hype train, I'm going to throw this out there. I know we always say as our closing, tell a friend, tell a foe. But I mean it. All right. You guys are stuck in quarantine, or maybe you're not. Do me a favor, like a really nice favor. I'll be so grateful. Actually tell a friend if you like our podcast. And then also actually tell someone that you don't like about our podcast. Or tell two people you do like. That's okay, too. No, no, no. I think one foe is worth two friends. So it's actually three if you don't tell a foe. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Three <laughs> friends or one friend, one foe. Or the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So you could tell the enemy of your enemy and it will balance out. <laughs> this is ultimate math. <laughs> my point is this. You have two options. You can either send us a ghost story or tell a friend and tell a foe, but you can't do neither. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. I agree completely. (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening and joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. (laughs) Do your friend and foe math. (laughs) And we'll see you soon. Okay. so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.